is where we've been in the book of Romans so far. Uh, we've, we've seen all the way back when we looked at, at Romans chapter 14, the very beginning there, we left off in the middle of the, the chapter, as I said. Um, but we're in this mini-series called Unity and Diversity. And uh, what I mean by that is, speaking of the body of Christ, if you look around this room, we're all different. We all look different. We all come from different backgrounds, different cultures. Uh, we all have um, different spiritual journeys that led us to this place today. We're not the same. And that's a good thing. Amen? That's a healthy thing. Uh, it'd be very boring to be part of the church if everybody, when you became a Christian, just was the same as everybody else. All right? And unfortunately, there are those within the body of Christ that try to make a cookie-cutter uh, resemblance of people in their church and things like that. But we're not that kind of a church. We, we allow you to be who you are in Christ, and we celebrate that. And yet we know that within that diversity, we're also called to unity. And that's not an easy thing to accomplish, as we know. And so as we look at this text here this morning, the idea that we're not all from the same cookie cutter, we all don't have the exact same uh, personality, things like that, we can see that this is a task that only God can do, okay, to create unity in diversity. And so the last time we were together, just in way of review, is we looked at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14, and we realized that each one has a faith. It says, so as for the one who is weak in faith, we welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables, and he talks there about the weak in the faith. And that's the definite faith, the Christian faith. And whether you're weak or strong in the faith, if you're in the faith, you have a faith. That's his point. Each one has a faith. And we discussed that at length. The second thing we noted was in verses 3 to 4 that each is accepted by God. Each is accepted by God. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Now here he's talking about eating vegetables or eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, but you can apply this to anything in life. And so in the context, he's dealing with this because this was a real issue in their church because they had both Jewish and Gentiles in the church. And so you had people from a, a Jewish background who would see all this uh, meat that was sacrificed to idols and they say, wow, they can't partake of that. That's just wrong. How could you ever do that? And yet you had people from a, a non-religious background coming, and they would go to the market, and because the meat was discounted, because it was idol worship meat, they would buy it and not have a problem, no, no conscience at all. And, and some Christians would look at that and go, wow, that is just so wrong. And so you had all these ideas being formulated in the church, and what Paul is trying to do is bring them together in unity. And he points out that there's a weak brother or sister in the Lord, someone who's maybe not real strong in their faith, who's easily influenced. And there are others who are stronger, they're more mature in the Lord. But the point of verses 3 and 4 is each one is accepted by God. Why? Because they're a believer. See, you don't reach a certain spiritual plateau and then God says, okay, now, now you're in. <laughs> you know, that's how we think of it. A lot of times in the secular world, you know, you join a, a company and it takes a while for you to get the credibility and, and the, the investment in that company to where they say, okay, now you can become a partner and now you're at this level within the company. It doesn't work that way in the body of Christ. Once you come to Christ, once you acknowledge your sin before holy God and you say, you know what, I'm willing to trust the Savior who died in my place for the forgiveness of my sins, immediately you are placed within the body of Christ. And you have an equal uh, investment as everybody else, even though you may be brand new in faith. You may not know all the verses and, and, and know all the nuances of the Christian faith yet, but you know what? You're in Christ. You've trusted Christ. And on the other hand, you may be sitting next to someone who's been a Christian for 50 years and is very mature in their faith. See, and you can see where there would be a tendency to look Oh, I've been a Christian longer than you. And you start this competition. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the proper attitude because each one has a faith. Each one is accepted by God. And then in verse 5, he says, each one is convinced in his own mind. 
One person esteems one day, here he's talking about on the days to worship, as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now remember, Paul is not speaking here on things where we're giving biblical precedent. He's speaking of optional things. He's speaking of things that that we don't have chapter and verse on. And so many times we have people within the church that take those things that we don't have chapter and verses on, we call them preferences in our life, and, and we make it law for everybody. And so then we pass judgment on those who don't agree with us. And see, that's why it's important when you understand Scripture that you understand, is this just a preference or is this a biblical principle? Is this something that God truly wants us, is commanding us to do or not? You know, example, you know, it's not a, an option for you whether or not you can go across the street and steal your neighbor's car. That's not an option. I mean, the Bible speaks very clearly of taking something that's not yours, right? Thou shalt not steal. So you can't say, well, according to my belief, no. We have to go by what God has revealed to us. But on the other hand, there's some people that say, well, you know, I like to go to church. Our church has a Saturday night service, so I go Saturday night. Is that sin? That because I work on a Sunday, is that a sin? Because I can't go to church on, on Sunday, I, I end up going Saturday night instead. Well, they take a, a, a basic principle of resting on the Sabbath, right, that God laid down for us in Scripture, and they apply it very broadly. And, and I would say some people apply it very legalistically, and say, well, you have to do it on Sunday. Well, that's the model in the New Testament. That's when they gathered. But you know what? If if your life experience has you at work on Sunday morning and you can't go to church, it's probably a good idea to go to a Saturday night service or a Sunday night service or, or whenever you can fit it in. Or maybe you work those days and you have to come out on Wednesday night. See, the point is, is you're taking time and you're setting time aside for the Lord that you're not out there slaving, working seven days a week, 24-7, and then you realize, wow, my spiritual life is a wreck. I wonder why. Because you're a slave to your work. And that's not the model that, that Christ nor God has laid down for us. He said six days and seventh day, you rest. And so you have to be convinced in your own mind. And the Bible says that if you're not, if you're doing something that your conscience is convicting you of, it's probably sin. And so you need to be aware of that. And then he says in verse 6 that each is thankful. He says each is thankful. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he give thanks to God. While the one who abstains, well, guess what? He abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So there are some issues here. He's talking about eating vegetables or meat. This isn't a support, a text that supports vegetarianism, by the way. It's not, that's not, that's not what it's meant to talk about. It's, it's basically saying that, you know what, if you just want to eat vegetables, that's fine. But don't make that the rule for everybody else. But in the context, they were talking about meat that was sacrificed to idols and things like that. And, and some people had a hard time, as I just said. But each one was thankful. And then the next couple verses here, verses 7 and 8, we talked about the idea that this is not your life anyway. You know, a pastor put out a book called Your Best Life Now. Well, you know what? It's not your life. If you've come to Christ, if you've surrendered your heart and your soul to God, guess what? You're a slave to God. You went from being a slave to sin to being a slave to God. You're not your own person. You don't live for yourself. That's what he says in verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. What's he mean? That, you know what, the world is bigger than just you. There's other people involved. What you do affects other people, especially within the body of Christ. And then he says, the reason we live, verse 8, whatever we do, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die is irrelevant because we're the Lord's. See, that's good news. 
That's, that's a news that should excite you a little bit. That it's, it's not, this life is not ours to, to deal with. It's, it's, we become a slave to God. We become a servant to God. And so we don't live for ourselves. We live for the Lord. And then the last verse here that we, we looked at, the last section of verses here in verse 9, it says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? He asks this question. Or why do you despise your brother? In other words, because he eats meat and you don't, you're going to hold him in judgment? And so Paul says, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And what he's trying to get the church to understand is, you know what? So many times we go around judging everybody else, and God wants us to say, hey, stop it. Look at your own life. Look at what's going on right here. And that's the illustration, you know, in the New Testament we find as well. What right do you have to point out a splinter in, in somebody's eye when you have a hunking log hanging out of yours? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And so he, he wants us to understand that the Lord is Lord of all, <clears throat> verse 9. But then he says, you know what? We don't have the right to judge because one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And it says there, every knee will bow. Every knee. Not just those who are saved, but even those who are not saved. One day we'll come to terms with the very fact that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he says there, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself to God. And so this is the, the, the review from December when we were in this text. And this brings us to verse 13. And so with our focus on verse 13 to 23, let me read it for you. And you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. Therefore... Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace. And for mutual upbuilding, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Is sin. This text talks about Christian liberty. It talks about the liberty that we have as believers in Christ. And when we stop and we think of this new covenant that we find ourselves in the, in the New Testament under, our Lord Jesus Christ has really given us this incredible freedom to those who belong to him by faith, those who've trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, to understand this more fully, we have to first define liberty, what that word means. If you look it up in the, defini- in the uh, dictionary, you'll find this, the quality or state of being free. The power to do as one pleases. Freedom from physical restraint. Freedom from uh, arbitrary or or despotic control. The positive enjoyment of various social, political, and economic rights and privileges. The power of choice. Those are all pretty good definitions. 
And as a Christian, when we put Christian liberty, when we talk about that, it's really talking about the idea that we are freed from the penalty of sin as Christians. Just let that soak in, that you are freed from the penalty of sin. You are freed from spiritual death. You are freed from eternal damnation in hell for all eternity. That's what Christ has done for us on the cross. But Christians are also freed from the kind of weight and the burden of ceremonial law that they had in the Old Testament. We're also freed from the dietary restrictions of some of the Old Testament. And see, apart from sinning, we are completely free to enjoy whatever God has given us as gifts from above. And he has graciously, lavishly bestowed gifts on us as believers and for those who have trusted in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, hear me out on this. Because even though we're permitted to enjoy that freedom, we're free to do all those things that I spoke of, we're not commanded to enjoy that freedom. And there's a big difference. Um, We're permitted to enjoy that freedom, but we're not commanded to enjoy it. We're not obligated to all the time exercise every freedom we have in Christ. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the greater our love and the the more that we grow in our relationship with Christ and our maturity with Christ, probably those freedoms that are new to us when we first come to Christ, they become less, more and more less important. They kind of fall by the wayside. At first, it feels like, wow, I'm free. I can do all these things. And yet, you know what? After that freedom is there a while, you don't feel like you have to take advantage of everything. I remember the first time we went on a cruise a couple years ago, someone gifted us with a a cruise, and we went on a cruise. And, you know, what do you think of when you hear about cruises? You hear about food, right? I mean, that's just what, what people do, I guess. So we get to this cruise, and, you know, and so we're, we're checking it out. And, and uh, I mean, sure enough, man, we go up to the place where the food is. It's tons of food. I mean, more food you can ever, ever eat, ever eat. And for the first probably three days of that cruise, right, oh, we've got to go to the buffet again, man. And then we realize we don't just have to go to the buffet. You can actually go down and have a fine dining experience in a restaurant, and it doesn't cost you any more. And you can have your own private little table so you don't have to stand there with all the other minions and, and, and get the, you know, cafeteria food. I mean, it's great food. You can actually sit down and they'll wait or bring you a menu and, oh, what do you want, sir, and give you a cloth napkin. We discovered that. And, man, well, this is great. And we do it for breakfast. We do it for lunch. We do it for dinner. And then we discovered that that's not enough. You can actually pay like $20, $25 and go to a super five-star restaurant. And gets like superfood served to you. I mean, it was crazy. And then we went on our second cruise. You know, we, I don't even think we went to the buffet once, maybe once. We realized, you know what, I mean, it's there. But, you know, the, the freedom of going up there and eating as much as you want, as long as you want to eat it, they just keep on bringing stuff out, it, it wears off. See, and, and sometimes when we first become Christians, that burden of sin is off us and we realize and we realize that we're free in Christ. It's like this new experience and we're just so excited. And we feel we got to tell everybody about it. Well, after a while, we kind of grow accustomed to our freedom in Christ. And what Paul is trying to get us to understand here is that even though this freedom exists, we have this freedom and we are free to enjoy all these things that God has given us, we're not commanded to do so. We're not obligated. We don't have to take advantage of every freedom all the time. And the more we grow in Christ, the more, I I guess you could say it, less important those freedoms become. Not that they're not real, they still are. But we're willing to relinquish them. 
You know, if, if we find a, a weaker brother that, that maybe doesn't have the same ability to enjoy the things we do, we don't want to cause them to stumble, we're going to look at. But so we're, we're saying, okay, well, I don't have to express that freedom because it may be offensive to them. And so our concern should be for our fellow Christians, our fellow people within the body of Christ. And Paul describes these people as weak. Those who are still in some way shackled by the external requirements or restrictions that they lived under before. I, I remember I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, grew up, did an altar boy thing, the whole thing. And I remember after I got saved, going in even to a Protestant church and walking through the door and doing this deal and looking for the holy water, and there's no holy water. I'm thinking, wait, what's going on? And I probably did that, you know, five or six times. And you go into a Baptist church and you do this, and they, they give you the stink guy, you know, oh, who's this guy, you know, what's he doing? Because they don't do that. You know, we don't do that in, in our church. There's nothing wrong with it, okay? But it, it's just, we don't do that. And so it took me a while to get out of that, out from under that kind of misunderstanding of what was required religiously for me when I went to church. I thought it was odd that they never kneeled, First thing I noticed was there's no kneelers here. What's going on? You know, don't you folks believe in kneeling when you pray? Or It was a really odd experience for me. And yet, now I come into this church, I don't even think about it. It would be weird if we had kneelers. You know, as a matter of fact, I think it was A.W. Criswell at First Baptist Church of Dallas. Baptist church, big church. When he became the pastor of that, he was preaching a message on prayer. And he said, you know what? He goes, I think we got it wrong. And I'm ordering our church to install kneeling rails in all the pews because I want a praying church. (laughs) And so he did. He had kneeling rails actually installed in the Baptist church, First Baptist Church uh, of Dallas, I think it was, where he was the pastor. And it was a ministry that was built on prayer. Whether you have that or not is irrelevant. But what all I'm saying is some of those things that once we were maybe shackled to or once we misunderstood, when you become a Christian, they don't just automatically f- fall away. You're still kind of held to those things. An example would be when a, a, a Jewish person from Jewish heritage comes to Christ. All right? If you invite them over for dinner, it's probably not a good idea to serve them shrimp and lobster. Okay, they just don't eat that kind of stuff, usually, from their tradition. And so when you, when you stop and think about it, you know, we have to be more mature in that way. You know, I mean, we could call them to task and say, well, why, you know, your freedom from that. But they haven't come to that conclusion yet. All right. And, and some people just do it for dietary reasons. But, but if it's a spiritual thing, even though it may not be correct biblically, we don't have to jump all over them and show them, you know, impress them to believe what we believe. And this is what Paul is trying to understand. The issue for the the mature, the stronger Christian is not whether or not he or she possesses the freedom to do whatever she wants to do, but how it will affect others. How is it going to affect others when you act that way? And this is what Paul is, is telling us all the way from the beginning of chapter 14 all the way down through chapter 15, verse 13. All responsibility does not just fall on the stronger brother either. It also is equally laid on the weaker brother. So just because they feel that maybe they can't eat a certain food, it doesn't give them the right to judge you because you don't have their mindset. You don't have their conviction, you might say. And so strong and weak believers have a mutual responsibility, you might say, to really honor each other's uh, understanding to love and to fellowship with each other, and to really step away and refrain from just judging everybody based on what they do and maybe their understanding or misunderstanding of Scripture. And we're talking about issues that the New Testament doesn't command or condemn. So we're talking about optional issues. Some of those issues would be how long your hair is as a man. Okay, I... I, went to a, a conference early on in ministry, and they literally had a barber shop in the lobby of the church. Very straight-laced, you know, everybody looked the same. The pastor had black glasses like this and, and kind of real thick 
lenses and all the students at his little Bible college, they had glasses. They looked just like the pastor. And when they preached, they preached just like the pastor. They were like, it was like, it was kind of odd. It was like a cookie cutter, you know, church. And they not only had a, a barber shop in the lobby, they had a dress shop because women were not allowed in the sanctuary with pants on. So if you wanted to go in their church, they had, they'd give you a dress, beautiful dress, and a place to change. But you were not going to walk into their sanctuary with pants on. I mean, it was kind of crazy. And, and when you stop and you think about it, those are those kind of things that Paul is talking about. He's saying, you know what, Scripture doesn't speak directly to these things. Now, there are some verses that they pull out of context and they try to, to make you believe that that's what it is. Uh, you know, I almost got kicked out of Bible college because I wasn't, you know, going along with the flow. And I remember early on, I just... I would read, I read the student manual. I never read it. That was a problem, to be honest with you. I, I went to this college, and I never even looked at the student manual. I just thought this is going to be a cool college to go to because I thought it was going to be on the beach out at, at, at La Jolla, and, and this is where the, the school was because this is the picture they painted on their catalog. This was before the Internet. So if you wanted to know about a college, you'd send away, and they'd send you a nice color catalog. And on the cover of Christian Heritage College catalog, they had a picture of La Jolla Cove. If you've ever been to La Jolla Cove, it's just beautiful. And I thought, man, I am going to California. I'm going to this Christian college, and I'm going to live it up on the beach. This is going to be awesome. And I get to San Diego. I got saved in April. By the middle of May, I was in San Diego. That's how fast this thing transpired. So I didn't do any research at all. And wrote him a letter, said I wanted to apply, applied. I had the money, so they said, sure, come on out. And uh, I got there, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm so excited to see this campus. It's got to be beautiful. And I remember downtown San Diego, I got off the train. I took the train from L.A., and I got off the train, and I remember asking somebody, where, uh, how can I get to Elka John? Because that's what the address was on on the school. It's called El Cajon, but I didn't know. The white guy from back east, you know, how do I get to El Cajon? They all laughed, and they said, oh, well, you got to take a bus or a taxi. I mean, it's like 12 miles away. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, which direction? And when they said east, I'm like, wait a minute, what do you mean? You know, because I was at the beach. This is where I wanted to stay, you understand? But that's not where the school was. The school was in this little El Cajon place called the Box. That's what it stands for, I guess, in Spanish. And in the summertime, it gets so hot. Anytime it was hot in this place. And it was far away from the beach. It was, you know, 12, 13 miles from the beach. I had no car. This is not what this was portrayed to be. And I remember at this college, having this, this things being imposed upon me. Well, you can't listen to rock music. Okay, well, how about I went out and got a Leon Patillo album. He was an a ex-member keyboardist from Santana who got saved. And he had Christian music, and I saw him at a Calvary Chapel. We weren't supposed to go to Calvary Chapels either because they were charismatic, and this school was not charismatic. So, but I snuck out, and we went to this concert, and I got his album, and I thought, finally, I got a Christian album. I'll go back to my dorm room, and I'll put it in and play it. Well, the RA, what are you listening to, Converse? You can't listen to that. I said, no, it's Christian. Look, you know, dance, Jesus, dance, dance unto the Lord. You know, I'm singing this. He's like, no, 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 it's got a beat. I'm like, what? He goes, didn't you read the manual? You can't listen to music that's got a beat here. I said, are you insane? All music has a beat. So they were way, way off the, the radar. I mean, as far as their conservative views. And so I remember pink slip after pink slip arrived in my box. You know, my hair was too long. I didn't do this. I, I wore shorts to the pool and walked through the cafeteria and you had to wear long garments there. It was just crazy. And, you know, coming from a non-Christian background, I just thought they were nuts. So it was about the middle of my first semester. I think you had to have 15 pink slips before they'd kick you out of the school. I had 40. Not only did I have 40, I would post them on my little cupboard. And my roommates would go, Converse, what are you, how, why are you still here? And I'm like, well, I don't know, you know. And they didn't know that I had got a job at the school. And part of my job was being a janitor. And I would clean the offices. And, and part of what I did was I'd go into the dean's office. I'd get this pink slip. And I'd think, oh, what's he want to talk to me now? And I'd go into his office. And he'd have everything laid out. He'd have my folder there. 
talked to Steve about his hair. It's too long. You know, the RA reported him. So I'd go get my hair cut. I'd show up at his office the next morning. Hey, Dean Blackburn, how you doing? You know, oh, good. He'd look at me, you know, kind of, uh, well, uh, did you get a haircut? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And, you know, trust me, this was not right. But, yeah, the Lord has really convicted me. And, you know, I, I went out and <laughs> had one of the gals cut it for me. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that's, well, that's what I want to talk to you about. But it seems like you took care of that, so that's fine. And whether it was music or whatever, I had a heads up all the time. So I'd always confess before he'd even say anything. So in his mind, he just kept on kind of giving me a pass on this. And what came to a point in time where they said, this is it, no more. And I went and talked to Tim LaHaye. Dr. Tim LaHaye, and he said, what is your problem? I mean, we've extended more grace to you than any student ever. And, you know, if you don't want to go to our school, that's fine. Just leave. And I said, why? You know, my problem is you keep on giving me these rules, and then you try to support them with these cheesy verses pulled out of context. He goes, stop. He goes, you know what? The men who founded this school, I would say, were of a very conservative persuasion. And even I don't agree with all the rules. But let me make it very clear. This is our school, and these are our rules. So if you want to come here, you have to obey the rules. So you're not going to change it. And if you don't, that's okay. Just leave. And that was the first person that didn't try to defend that. And, and so I was able to fulfill my obligations. And I don't think I ever got written up again, to be honest with you, because it, it made sense. You know, but up until that time, it was just this burden of rules and regulations. And see, that's what was going on in this church. They had all this stuff from their previous life carried over and, and pressing down upon them. And so Paul is bringing up this idea of Christian liberty. And, you know, most churches include dedicated, faithful believers who, in their own conscience... They don't allow them in to approve or to become part of certain uh, practices. I mean, there are, there are some here today that would probably say, well, no, I, I would never drink alcohol. There are others that say, well, I drink some alcohol, but I don't get drunk. All right? There are other people that say, well, I don't dance. I'd be one of them. I don't dance because I, I think it's biblically wrong. I just don't like to dance. But um, matter of fact, I had a harpist at my wedding reception. Because my wife comes from a culture where they dance all the time. I mean, she was a professional dancer, right? So I'm thinking, how can I get out of dancing at my own wedding? And I thought, I'll just hire a harpist. I mean, how are you going to dance to harp music, right? It worked for me. But it wasn't, I remember people saying, oh, I'm so proud you didn't have dancing at your wedding. I said, well, I didn't do it for a biblical reason. I just did it because I didn't want to dance. But people have problems with that, you know, or the length of your hair, whatever you want to talk about. And see, the Bible tells us that, as a result of this, these things not being addressed directly, they're not, in Scripture, we're not given indications whether we can do these things or not. Paul is saying, you know what? When strong believers in the body of Christ, we should have a love for our brothers and sisters who may be weaker. We should voluntarily restrict our own liberty in Christ so that we can... Um, kind of transform and help them get to a point in their Christian life where, you know what, they're not always being judged, but we're trying to help them understand where they're at in Christ. Um, You choose the relationship over that preference, you might say. We have to realize that our Christian liberty is is vertical, okay? It's, It's between us and the Lord, but when we express that, that Christian liberty that we have in Christ, it extends horizontally, and it affects other people. Now, if you stop and think to rightly understand the use of our freedom in Christ, if you properly understand it, it you can live a very satisfied Christian life. But a lot of time, it's, it's dependent on us being willing to surrender that freedom for the sake of someone who may not express that freedom. Uh, And it it, it definitely pleases the Lord when we do this. And it promotes unity within the church. You know, once again, it's not about us. I may have the freedom to do something. It may not bother my conscience at all. But you know what? If I know I'm talking to somebody who's weaker 
in the faith, maybe a weaker, newer Christian, whatever, and, and I'm, I'm starting to talk about things, and I see discomfort coming on their face, and they're calling into question my own, my own Christian integrity based on what I'm sharing with them, I need to give them an explanation. I need to, well, okay, you know, I need to back off. I don't need to convince them further of why I believe what I believe. Uh, and there's a danger here within this, within the church, okay? And the danger is known as what they call, in theological terms, they call it free grace theology. Have you ever heard of that? Free grace theology? It's essentially the idea of, of salvation that's come out of a, a, a lot of Baptist roots. Um, I went to a school who kind of held this to some degree. It was uh, turned into kind of a systematic theology by the likes of uh, Charles Ryrie, as a, 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 a Bible study out, uh, Zane Hodges, and this is back in the 80s. And it, what it was, it was a response to what they called lordship theology. So you had free grace theology, then you had lordship theology. I mean, the, the, the terminology itself kind of defines what, what it means. Um, and even though those terms are kind of new, this thing has been around ever since the time of Paul. People have gone back and forth. Was that right? Is that wrong? And, you know, the way to put an end to things like that is simply ask people chapter and verse. You know, well, why is your hair long? Well, give me a chapter and a verse in context that will speak to that. Um, Or why don't you have a dress on and you're in church? Chapter and a verse. Um, If you're a female, I should say. Nowadays, you've got to kind of qualify that, right? So... uh, (laughs) So it leads to this free grace and its emphasis on the assurance of salvation. And basically they say, you know what? The only thing needed for salvation is that you profess Christ. That's all. Just say, I believe. It's a, it's a growing problem within the church. Because what happens is you have people saying, yeah, I believe that. I'll come down to just as I am and bow at the cross and, and, you know, say the sinner's prayer. And then they leave the church and what do they do? They go back to the same sinful behavior and the sinful practices that they had before. And nothing's changed. Because all they did is walk down an aisle and raise a hand and say a prayer. But God hasn't transformed the heart. And that's what salvation is about. Salvation is about God transforming our heart, our desires, from the inside out. And so what they say is, no, you just need to make a profession of faith. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to see fruits of righteousness in your life. If you really want to get serious about your salvation, after you come to Christ, then you can become a disciple of Christ. And you become a follower of Christ. And that's where some sacrifice comes in. That's why denying yourself comes in. And see, this is a a very prevalent problem within churches because you have churches that are gathering together and they're hearing this message that Jesus loves them come just as you are all this stuff and all that's true to a certain extent but when you put an emphasis only on that it comes up empty in the end because it doesn't call for change I used to tell kids when I was a youth pastor no change no Jesus no Jesus no change you know because I got sick and tired of taking kids to winter camp every winter, and hearing some incredible speaker, and them all flocking to the front and crying and, and praying all kinds of prayers to become a Christian, and on the road back down, back to the church, they're all singing songs, Christian songs, and they're throwing out their, their uh, back then it was their cassette players and all that kind of stuff, getting rid of all the music, and, you know, and then two weeks later, they're right back to the same old stuff they were before they went to camp. There was no change, and yet I would say, hey, I thought you became a Christian. Oh, I did. I did. I, 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 did, I did the prayer thing. Just like the guy said, <laughs> I'm a Christian. Well, why aren't you living for Christ then? Well, because they can't. Because someone has deceived them into thinking that they're a believer when they're not. So they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the assurance of their salvation. Everything's based on what they do. It's unfortunate. And so you have those two camps. You have the idea of lordship salvation, which I don't like that terminology, but it basically says that when you come to Christ as Savior, you come to Christ as Lord as well. You don't have the option to to trusting Jesus as your Savior, and then when you mature in Christ, saying, well, now I'm going to make him Lord. 
I mean, think about that terminology. Who are we to make God anything, let alone to make Jesus Lord? I mean, if you read your Bible, you'll find out real quick that we don't need to make him Lord. Guess what? He already is. And he's very proficient at it. The Bible says he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the New Testament places considerable restraints upon our Christian liberty. We don't just get to do whatever we want after we come to Christ. Because you know what? We're called to a church. And when we're called to a church, we're called to a church that's made up of individuals. And guess what? Those other individuals may not have the same opinion on something that you do. And so what are these restraints that the New Testament tells us about? I wrote them down there. We're not going to go through the whole outline if you're wondering, oh, how's he going to get through all this? We're not. Okay, so that's why we do it week to week. So next week, we'll pick up where we leave off. So we'll end here in in about 10 minutes. The first restraint I want you to look at is liberty is not to cause self-destruction or self-bondage. In 1 Peter 2, verse 16, Peter declares this. He says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Or you can think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, when he says, all things are lawful for me. In other words, as a believer, I'm I'm able to do anything. But all things are not, what? Profitable for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, there's a very dangerous segment of the church today that's saying, wow, I'm free in Christ, so that means there's no rules. Antinomian belief, the idea that there is no law, there is, there is nothing to hold you account to anything. You just come to Jesus just as you are, trust him as your Savior, and all's good. You can go do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But the Bible says it does. Because if that kind of Christian liberty leads you to self-destructive behavior that is able to bring you into bondage, a habit or a practice may not be sinful in and of itself. I mean, the Bible says Paul encouraged Timothy to what? Take a little wine for his stomach? You know, so some people make this huge deal about drinking alcohol. Well, coming from a family that's had some experience with alcoholism, I would say that's probably a very dangerous road to go down. It's very dangerous because it has the ability to destroy your life. It has the ability to hold you captive. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's Smoking, whether it's smoking drugs, whether it's taking drugs, all these things, okay, are, are things that are probably not profitable for you. Now, the Bible does have indication, don't drink strong drink. We do have an, verses that say it's sinful to be what? To be drunk, to be under the influence of alcohol. Um, so, you know, you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, well, because I have a, a glass of wine at dinner and I'm free in Christ to do that, does that mean if I have a, a dinner at my house and I invite everybody from the church over that because I have a right to drink a glass of wine, I'm going to serve everybody wine? See where the, the problem may lie. You don't know what my background is. Maybe I'm a recovering alcoholic and you're putting a glass of wine in front of me? Whoa, talk about danger. Talk about losing your credibility. Even though if you did it with your wife in the quietness, nobody's, there's not a problem. If you have a clear conscience doing that, if you're not becoming intoxicated. And so you have to look at these practices in this way. Uh, what has begun as an exercise of legitimate freedom can turn into a form of bondage or self-destruction just like that. When you have someone who's careless or selfish in their exercise of the God-given freedoms that they they have as a Christian, it often results in the loss of freedom. 
It results in them becoming mastered, as Paul said. I don't want to be mastered by anything. So there's a real idea here of of being careful when you're dealing with these kind of things. Instead of serving and honor the one who, who gave you that freedom, that freedom is carelessly uh, used. And if you do it in a careless fashion, it can even underwork, undermine the work of God. It can dishonor his name. It can wreak havoc on somebody else in somebody else's life. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about alcohol or, or watching movies. I mean, all kinds of things. You, you know the things I'm talking about, things that, that the verse doesn't necessarily deny us, but at the same time, some people may struggle with, with that area. So liberty does not give us the freedom to be self-destructive. Secondly, liberty is not meant to stunt spiritual growth. It's not meant to stunt spiritual growth. Um, I guess I missed the first point. It's not to justify an evil or excess in our life. We covered that. But, um, and the third one here is it's not meant to stunt spiritual growth. A lot of times, I mean, when we, when we want to express our Christian liberty, all right, we have to be careful that it's not stunting our growth or the, the growth of somewhere else, someone else. You know, I've known Christians who said, oh, you know, and they almost say it pridefully. I don't own a TV. I don't have TV in my house. Okay, great. That's fine. I like to watch the news. I got a, well, not a big TV, 40-inch TV in my house. Um, I remember when I first moved here, we were moving into a house on Jefferson. And a brother in the Lord, he, uh, we were unloading the U-Haul truck. And he actually said this. I didn't even know this guy, really. He said this to me. He goes, you know, pastor, it's really good to meet a, a pastor that's not, doesn't care about the world. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, I just look at your furniture and, you know, <laughs> this puny TV that you have. And I'm like, is this guy really saying this to me? You know, he goes, it's refreshing, you know. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I think I mentioned to one of the guys, I said, well, uh, you know, we bring in the other truck around with the, you know, the big honking TV, which we didn't have one, but I just did it to pull his chain. But it was, it was ridiculous, you know, but that's how we think sometimes. You know, we think that somehow as Christians, we're relegated to this, this life of poverty. We can't own anything that's nice. And, and God forbid that we would drive a new car or, would, oh, oh, what are they thinking? Well, you know what? If God has blessed you to be able to do that, God bless you. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. What's, in, what's wrong with it is when those things have you, when you become in, in bondage to those things. Um, and that's what Paul is warning about here. Uh, many, many of those things can become, um, you know, ungodly things if we allow them to take over our lives. But even inherently innocent things can become, you know, harmful to us. There's nothing wrong with having a TV in your house. But if all you do is watch TV 24-7, you got a problem. You know, or if the only place you get your news is, is on the, you got a problem. Okay? Um, so you, you just have to be sensitive to that. And that's what Paul says. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I don't want to cause people harm in their spiritual lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that all race, all, all in a race are the, uh, of the... Uh, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, they do it to receive a perishable crown, we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, Paul says. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And he says even in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, having a righteousness of my, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And he goes on and he talks about pressing on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so when we, we stop and we think about our, our Christian liberty, okay, we want to understand that God has laid out some restraints on that liberty. We, we, we're not allowed to justify evil or excess in our life. We're not allowed to cause self-destruction or self-bondage uh, to something. And we're not allowed to limit our own or others' spiritual growth. You know, those things would bring us harm. In our, in our walk before God. That would not be honoring. And so what Paul is pointing out, and next week we'll get into what he talks about, these principles, but the first one is don't cause your brother to stumble. If what you're doing is causing anybody to stumble, Paul's word is stop it, even though you have the right to do it. See? And, and that's where we get hung up so many times on just being right all the time that we're unwilling to bend. We're unwilling to yield to someone else's view on something, even though it could devastate the relationship. Well, I am right, and I know I'm right, and I'm going to stand by my guns. Well, sometimes we have to be gracious. We have to extend grace, and we have to just smile, and, and we'll praise the Lord, and just move on. You know, don't feel we have to fix every little thing that's wrong with, with someone else. Well, that was our introduction. So next week, we'll actually get to the message. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Thank you that we were able to celebrate Nathaniel's dedication with the hills, and we pray for them that you'd give them guidance and understanding as they raise these children up in the admonition of the Lord. Lord, we also pray for us that as a body of Christ that we would be willing to be gracious with one another. Lord, that we would be willing to forgo our Christian liberty in Christ. What you have given us a freedom to do doesn't mean we always have to do it. It may be harmful to someone else if we exercise that freedom all the time. And so, Lord, I pray that we, you would give us a sensitivity to those who are in Christ and, and uh, that we would uh, not look down upon them or they would not look down upon us, but, Father, that we would come to a proper understanding of who we are in Christ before you. And we thank you for your grace. And we pray for any here today who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. I pray that you would cry, they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, that's a prayer that will save because you're acknowledging your personal sinfulness before a holy God, knowing that he gave his only son, Christ, to become the substitutionary death, the death in your place. He died for your sins in order to forgive. And so we don't want to trust in what we do, but we trust in what was done on our behalf. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would encourage any unbelievers here today to seek you out to ask you to reveal yourself to them in a way that they could understand it and come to you in a personal relationship as well. And Father, we pray for our fellowship over in the hall as well, that you would bless it, give us a, a blessed time. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.